This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. Just over 20 years ago, there was a movie. It's still doing the rounds. You can still find it called 51st State. It's sometimes called Other Things. It was written by a guy who was living in England at the time called Stel Pavlou. Soon after the release and success of the movie 51st State, Stel Pavlou had a book published called Decipher, and he came into a studio in London to talk to me about it. Decipher? Decipher what, Stel? Decipher um, myths and legends of uh, cultures from, for a thousand years and, um, and an ancient language from Atlantis found on crystal shards at the bottom of the ocean. Um, <laughs> It's, you know, I've said it before and I shall say it again. It's all in here, isn't it? Everything's in there. Uh, I think there's even a kitchen sink at one point. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's supposed to be a rip-roaring adventure, but I wanted it to be an intelligent one. So um, I went to town with uh, looking up archaeology and science and, and um, uh, you know, everything that I could chuck at six heroes who've got a week left to save the earth. A week left to save the <laughs> earth, yeah. Uh, and it really is, it's a week, isn't it? It's a week, yeah. Um, we've, we've discovered that um, something in the solar system caused um, the Great Flood 12,000 years ago when Noah was in his boat out fishing one day and um, it's all about to happen all over again. And they realised that um, unless they sort this out, it's game over, we're all dead. Uh, and this and the 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 twelve thousand years comes from the accurate timekeeping of the cosmos of the solar system. Yeah, the um, there's a little thing I don't even know the technical term for it. I'm sure it's in the book um, to do with geology, where you can um, measure how the north and south pole kept changing over yep. time on the Earth, um, and you can look at this and chart it. And the last time it happened was about ten and a half thousand BC. And it happens at regular intervals, and um, there's a lot of evidence that a flood did happen when I looked into it. And I thought, well, it would be fun. It's obviously going to happen again. I mean, all these climatological changes just keep happening over and over. So I was just looking at things like El Nino, and it just started giving me these ideas for um, what can you chuck at people. Yeah, so one of the basic ideas is we tend to think that the North Pole is up there and the South Pole is down there. Yeah. But not so long ago in geological time, actually, the North Pole was down there. Yeah, absolutely. It just flips totally. and um, We don't really know why, do we? No, there's no, there's no mechanism that anybody can think of that causes it. Um, because the, the centre of the Earth is like a spinning mass. Um, and that's what gives us um, the magnetic poles, and it's what also sort of is linked totally to gravity. And um, it's like a huge dynamo. But what on earth would cause that to spin the other way in order to make the magnetic fields change? No one knows. And I've realised, well, it's got to be something massive. So I, I thought, well, the, massive, the most massive thing that we've got that could do it is the sun. And that too changes its poles. I thought, well, there must be a, a link between the two. At some point, it, it just it must occur that it has a knock-on effect. I mean, it, it makes the t the tides, you know, go in and out. It gives us a suntan. It must have other effects on us. Well, I thought it was the moon that made the tides go in and out. Well, well no, the, it's, the yeah. moon. Yeah, but you know, I mean, it's just yeah. kind of massive physical bodies. What I'm getting at in the solar system have massive effects on Earth. And, and if you discount it, then I think you're, you know. No, I mean, you have the ability in here. I mean, I lost my, oh, come off it, on about page three. <laughs> right. Because you know, uh, the, the energy and the momentum actually 
means that you as a reader, if you go with it, it's such a good ride. Oh yeah, you have to go with it. I mean, there's kind of 95% of the, the science in it is, is true, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. I mean, unless people have been lying to me along the way, <laughs> um, which is always possible. But um, you really just sort of suspend disbelief for a little while, because um, th there's not a lot to, that you need to sort of put into it as an effort, as a reader, to sort of to make the little leaps. But it just gets incrementally Bigger. more and more outrageous and bigger and bigger and you realize there's this wow factor you get about halfway through and you're like good god can this get any bigger and yes frankly it can yeah um, i mean if, if this was going to be a movie and i know you're involved with movies if this was going to yeah. be a movie it'd be a big budget wouldn't it be probably bigger than titanic uh, yeah. which was about 200 million dollars i mean you've got you've got to build the whole of the city of atlantis in a big cave under the ice you've got to have You've got to freeze the oceans. You've got to do all sorts of other things, but but it starts off in such a small way um, that you don't quite realise. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's wet the appetite. What happens at the beginning? At the beginning. Um, in the beginning. In the beginning, there's um, uh, an oil ship looking for the latest reserves of oil in Antarctica, which is totally illegal. Um, through, you know, through the Antarctic Treaty, you're not allowed to go do this stuff. So they're there surreptitiously, and they're um, sneaking in under radar. Um, and there's a war brewing between China and the United States over mineral rights. So if they're discovered, that, that could really sort of tip the balance, and it could be all out sort of guns blazing. And um, in the middle of uh, drilling for oil, they uh, hit solid rock, and they end up bringing up chunks of crystal with writing on it, and it's not a crystal like they've ever seen before. Um, and they take it back to their research lab, and they realise that this is a crystal called carbon-60, which does exist. Um, it was invented by a guy called uh, Harold Croteau, um, and his partner, Smalley, whose first name I can't remember. But they are British, and they did win the Nobel Prize for chemistry for uh, inventing this stuff. But this stuff is, um, is it's like diamond, only tougher. And it's got all sorts of properties to it that um, electrical and um, it would be um, of great use to computing and the military and everybody wants this stuff. But what they realise is that um, because of the intense military action down there, um, they've picked up a signal coming from under the ice in the middle of Antarctica. And this signal matches the energy signature of the crystal they've just picked up. And they realise that this, this place that they've detected is the size of Manhattan. And it can only be a city. And uh, that's it. It's, it's Yukon time. It's gold rush time. Everyone wants to get down there. Um, but during the course of the next, you know, as it unfolds, they realise, you know, for the next few hundred pages that, that it, they really can't think in terms of greed, although there are certain people who want to continue to think that way. Really, it's about sort of saving their own asses time. When you were doing the research for this, were there times when you went yourself, because this, this book is poor all the way, when you were going looking at the cold world of scientific fact, were there things that, made, that you, made you go, poor? Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's loads of bits. There's, I know nothing about sort of physics and chemistry. Uh, my background is American history and American literature. So I had to really sort of throw myself into it wholeheartedly. And the more bits I found out about it, the more intensely interested I got in it. Um, I'm, I mean, I can't really give you a specific at the moment because there's so many bits in there. I mean, let me just throw but, you one. Um, um, these caves, spherical caves. Oh, the that, ones that uh, Cousteau found. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're in the Bahamas somewhere. and. Um, 
uh, he'd gone down and um, found these really spherical looking caves and they realized there's only two ways these things could have been made it's either volcanic or it's or it's been done with with some form of explosive and it's man-made and then they looked closer and closer and discovered that there is a lot of evidence that it was man-made because there's things like drawings and stuff down there. The trouble is it's underwater and it's been underwater since about 10,000 10, BC, which means how on earth did anybody get down there to do it? Clearly, um, you then have to extrapolate from that, well then it was above the water at some point, but we didn't invent explosives till 500 years ago, so all of a sudden there's a paradox. And there's, I've just found lots of these incidents where there's a paradox. Um, and no one can explain it away. Generally what happens is someone writes up a paper on it because they found it, and then nobody ever replies. <laughs> they just bury it with ignorance. They just go, well, I don't know how to answer that. And um, uh, there's some great books out there that have just sort of catalogued it. There's a book um, by Michael Cramo called uh, Forbidden Archaeology. And it's just got lists and lists of these things that have been found, but no one can answer any of the mysteries surrounding it. But yeah. When you're writing this stuff, because what this book has got is energy. Right. There's so much energy. So are you pacing around the room 10 yep. o'clock at night? Yep. Is that how you do it? I write about 10 o'clock at night and I go through till about 5 in the morning. I pace around and I talk to myself in all the characters' voices. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes, sort of, you know, because I share a flat with my brother and a friend and if they're up late and they're wandering past my room, they're like, what's he doing now? Um, and I'm usually in the middle of it. I'm acting it out and I've, I've usually got a mirror somewhere and um, I'll try and sort of sort of snarl my face up if I'm trying to describe an expression and then just sort of study it. Um, I've got maps and things, I'll have things all over the floor, I've got charts, I'll, I'll have done diagrams of what everything looks like. Um, just all out, just immerse myself in it. Because you've written a movie too, haven't you? Yeah. 51st State is it 51st called? 51st State, yep. Starring Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Carlyle. Action comedy. <laughs> so did you, write, did you write the movie before you wrote this? I wrote both at the same time. Um, the movie, I wrote the first draft of it in about four weeks in 95, um, end of 95, beginning of 96. Um, and I'd started work on that. And then um, as time progressed, um, I would, they would keep throwing the movie back at me, so I had to rewrite it. And I ended up rewriting it about 17 times while at the same time writing Decipher. So the, the things the both just sort of ran concurrently and fed off each other. So when I wanted to get smart about things, I'd go back to decipher. When I just wanted some mindless comedy and action, I'd just take it all out in the 51st state. Uh, <laughs> are you, are you um, then um, congenitally rich? You know, did, <laughs> did, you know, has someone left you but shed loads of money so you could just hang around writing all day? No, 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 no. Um, I, was, I was working in threshers like you do. I was I was doing my day job at my local off license. Um, you know, I was um, going to work at five in the evening and um, uh, stopping at about eleven, something like that. I was um, talking to LA on the phone at about seven in the evening for an hour, and then I'd lock the shop up, go home, write decipher. <laughs> You're looking at me like I'm insane. No, I think it's just wonderful. <laughs> I think it is amazing. I mean, I, I, I want to applaud the fact that you were working in threshers. Yep. For and four years, I think it was, yeah. And you wrote a film script and actually got it off the ground. I think that's amazing. <laughs> you must be hugely proud of I'm yourself. I'm very chuffed. Yeah, very chuffed. But um, it's, it's been such a wild, wild ride. I haven't really had time to 
let it all sink in. I will in about six months' time when everything's sort of been out and aired and stuff, and then and then I can let it settle and then I'll pinch myself. But at the moment, things are just so rapid. Where was the Threshers? Threshers was in Rochester, in Kent. <laughs> and you can you promise me yeah. you actually talked to Samuel L. Jackson or the or the director from that? Absolutely. From the back office, and the bell would ding, and because they, they thought that was my office, so I mean it was just kind of I'd given out the Thresher's number, so I'd have to be pretty sure that they were calling, otherwise I'd answer the phone saying, you know, good evening, Thresher's Rochester, how can I help you? So you know, I had to just jump on the phone at certain times if I knew they were ringing, and then then they'd ask what the dinging bell was, and I'd have to explain <laughs> that it was just. Um, something on the computer in the background because, you know, I couldn't tell them that it was some old granny in for a sherry, so. So in LA, you're a big shot writer. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but um, I'm a writer. There's six million of them in LA. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you are, must, must be in the top 10%. They've actually made your movie. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I've sort of, we worked out 66,000 screenplays are submitted every year and only 150 get turned into a feature film. Isn't that an amazing story? Still Pavlou talking to me when his book Decipher was first published. He now lives in America, probably in some style, but it all started working behind the counter in Threshers in Rochester. This is the Author Archive. <laughs> 